Thank you, Deacon Brian. So we're going to be covering all of Nehemiah chapters 11 and 12 this morning together. But right away, as we begin, I actually want to direct you to what I think is the central verse in the text, the most important verse in the text. And I want to go here right away because I think it's really good news for us this morning. So it was, the, it was the verse that Deacon Brian just read, if you have your Bible still open, it's in chapter 12, verse 43. These are the people worshiping, and the Bible says this. And they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The woman and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. What I want to focus on is that grounding clause, beginning with the word for. They rejoiced because God had made them rejoice with great joy. God had made them rejoice with great joy. God gave them joy. I think that's the main thing from these two chapters, and it's one of the main things in the book of Nehemiah, I think, that God causes people to have true, deep, solid, sin-exploding, life-changing, worshipful joy. This is true all over the Bible. And just to be clear, we're not talking about some glib or giddy frolicking in the fields, pretending like everything's easy when it's not. That's not Christian joy. We're talking about a deep, solid satisfaction. Not putting on a fake smile, but a better-than-the-world-has-to-offer type of joy. This text says, God can give that to you. So are you here this morning and you're looking for some solid joy in your life? Are you here and you're looking for some deep delight that will finally cause the sins you struggle with to look weak and unsatisfying? Are you here and you're looking for some superior satisfaction that will finally cause you not to just live for money or for more success, that next level on the ladder, or for good looks or fame? Are you here and you're looking for some consistent enjoyment that will finally help you conquer your lusts? Or maybe you're here and you're really discontent with the world. And so you're here and you're looking for something precious that finally gives you purpose in your life, something bigger than you. Are you here and you're looking for that joy? Because good news, you were made for that joy. And God can give you that joy. See, the gospel isn't just about forgiveness. It's not even mainly about forgiveness. It's God forgives us, amen and hallelujah. We'll bless him forever because of that. But God is in the business of creating people all over the world, from all the nations, who deep down in their hearts are so captivated and changed by Christ, and they will be forever. That's what God's in the business of doing, and that's the gospel. And so I want to start here in this verse. Just want to, we'll come back to it, but I want to show you that this is good news for you this morning. God can give you joy. But today, as we said, we're not just going to be covering one verse. We're going to be covering two whole chapters. But it's okay because these two chapters are really one cohesive unit as you look at them more. So you can go back to chapter 11, chapter 11 if you want to start there. And I just want to give you a brief outline of these two whole chapters. They can be split up. These chapters can be split up into three main sections. The first is the longest, but it's just leading up to this time of worship. So the main thing in these chapters is worship. The first big section is all of chapter 11 and half of chapter 12, and it's leading up to this time of worship. And then we have the worship itself, the joyful worship, 
And then the last section is the results of the worship. So we're going to land and focus on the worship itself, but we're going to see it leading up to the worship. We're going to see the worship, and we're going to see the results of the worship. But we'll begin with this leading up to the worship. And we're going to be in chapter 11, just for a little context. If you've been here with us, the walls have been built for a while. Nehemiah chapter 6, the walls were finished. Then the people have read the law, they've confessed their sins, they've confessed God's greatness, they've renewed their commitment to God. And what we're going to see here in chapter 11 is now certain people are going to commit to go live in Jerusalem. That's about it. So let's start in these first two verses, Nehemiah 11, if you want to look down, verses 1 and 2. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city while nine out of ten remained in their other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. We'll stop there. That might seem a little strange because it seems and it shows that a lot of people didn't want to live in in Jerusalem. We could talk more on this, but the simple answer as to why is because even though they have these beautiful walls, living in Jerusalem still at this point wasn't very safe. Because if an army were to come by and see these wonderfully rebuilt walls, they might want to attack the city, and inside there might have only been about 5,000 people when they lived there. So it was a sacrifice to go there. And so what they did is they put it in God's hands, they cast the lots, and you see that they blessed the people who decided to go live in Jerusalem, who trusted the Lord and went and lived in Jerusalem. And now we're going to do some skimming, because from here on out, from verse 3 of chapter 11 all the way to verse 24, you notice it's a lot of names. And here you get basically the list of the leaders and their families who went to go live in Jerusalem. You see the names. And then verses 25 through 36 to end out chapter 11, you see the places where they lived. You see these places where they decided to live. And then from chapter 12 all the way through halfway through in verse 26 is the priests and the Levites who decided to go live in Jerusalem. The people who are going to lead these people in worship. So it's a lot of skimming, but the point is this. All of chapter 11 and halfway through chapter 12 is the people who are going to go worship in Jerusalem, who are going to go live in Jerusalem. It's setting the stage for the worship. So those is a big section. We can all agree that's not the main point. These are just the people who went and lived there. But I do think there's a quick application for us. See, we all agree, and the reason why I think with the limited amount of time we have here, we can skim over these names because we all agree that this book of Nehemiah, the Bible, is not about these people. It's not about them. It's about God. It's about their worship of God. And so for you here as a worshiper of God, honestly, it's not about you. It's not about us. It's not about you making a name for yourself. It's about God. And yet, why I love this is this is a long section. These people are listed. These are the worshipers of God. So I encourage you on your own time, struggle and try to read through all these difficult names. Because these are our brothers and sisters. These are the worshipers of God. And so for you, though it's not about you, worship's about God, you, your family, you can be worshipers of the living God. God will have a people. He will have a people all over the world. But you can be listed in God's book of life. You and your family can be worshipers of the living God. Or honestly, you could not be. But that's what we see here. So that's leading up to the worship. All these people who are filling the land. But now we're going to move on to the actual worship itself. I'm going to land here for some time because this is what it's mainly about. So we'll be in verse 27. But before we read it, I just want to point out that this, a lot of people argue and I agree, is actually the climax of the book of Nehemiah. 
a lot of all of this book has been leading up to here. Or to use another analogy, since it's going to be really loud in this section, they're going to be singing. This is the crescendo of the book. This is where things finally start to get really loud. See, the biblical books, the more you study them, and I encourage you to go to Bible studies so you can do this, you can dig deep. When you, you see these biblical books are cleverly arranged, they're composed in an intentional way, and Nehemiah is no different. And so all the details, or all the notes, if you will, have been leading somewhere. And they've been leading to here. I want you to see this for yourself. If, if, we, if we summarize the book of Nehemiah, right, we see that Jerusalem's in ruins, the walls are messed up, so Nehemiah goes and starts to rebuild the wall. They face a lot of opposition. They overcome the opposition, and then the wall gets done, but we're only about halfway through the book, so we recognize it's not only about that. Then they read the law. They confess their sins. They renew their commitment to God. Now we just saw people go and live in Jerusalem, but why? What's the point? Why all that? Here we see the climax. Here we see the crescendo. Why? So they can joyfully worship their God. This is why Ezra teaches the law. This is why Nehemiah governs. So they can lead the people to know and to cherish their God. To worship their God. That's why this, this worship is the climax. So that said, let's, let's, let's read this paragraph, verses 27 through 30, Nehemiah 12, if you want to look down with me. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites in all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to celebrate the dedication with gladness, with thanksgivings and with singing with cymbals, harps, and lyres. And the sons of the singers gathered together from the districts surrounding Jerusalem and from the villages of the Nedophathites, also from Beth Gilgal and from the regions of Geba and Asmaveth. For the singers had built for themselves villages around Jerusalem. And the priests and the Levites purified themselves, and they purified the people and the gates and the wall. So what they're doing here is they're dedicating the temple, or excuse me, dedicating the walls. And so they're setting apart for a purpose. That's what it means to dedicate, to offer it to God, to give it to God. In order to do this, when the celebration to celebrate, they, they got the instruments, they got... Uh, all the stuff they needed to, to celebrate, and then they got themselves ready. You notice that in the last verse here. They purified themselves. They were preparing for worship. So let's continue. Verse 31. We'll just read the first half of it. Then I, Nehemiah, brought the leaders of Judah up onto the wall. So this rebuilt wall was so big that you could stand on it. I brought them up onto the wall and appointed two great choirs that could give thanks. So here's what's going to happen. So these, these two groups, one goes to the south that's led by Ezra. The other group starts heading north led by Nehemiah. They're walking around the wall, walking around and seeing all that God has done for them. And their goal is to meet in the temple and to praise God. So we'll see that in verse 40 where they meet in the, t- in the temple area. Verse 40. So both choirs of those who gave thanks stood in the house of God and I and half the officials with me. So a lot of people, they're up on top of the walls, they're walking around, they're ready to praise God. Verses 41 and 42, you see all these names listed, but for what? Why all this prep? Why all this order? Verse 43, worship. Verse 43, and they offered great sacrifices that day and rejoiced, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. The woman and the children also rejoiced, and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. 
Here it is, God's people and God's renewed city inside God's walls, focusing on God, singing praises to God, worshiping God with the joy that God's creating in their hearts. That's worship. And so a lot could be emphasized from these three paragraphs, right? If we had more time, we see a lot of aspects of worship here. We see the communal aspect of worship, how there was many of them doing it. We see the unity of worship, how they were doing it together. We see how singing increased their joy. But what I want to focus on is once again that grounding clause. They rejoice for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And the reason I think I want to, I want to emphasize it, think I, the reason I think it is emphasized is because that didn't need to be said. There's a lot of places in this big Old Testament where God's people are said to rejoice. A lot of places. But this is one of the only places where we get and we learn how it ultimately happened. And the author didn't need to say that. He could have just said, and they rejoiced and the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. But he decides to add, they rejoiced because God had made them to rejoice. And so I think it's being emphasized here, and that means if the author's emphasizing it, then God's emphasizing it. He wants us to know how they rejoice. And the answer is, it was, it was God. And so why this emphasis? There's two things, I think, for us to glean from this today. Two things. First, God causes us to rejoice. God causes us to rejoice. It is God who causes deep, worshipful joy and satisfaction. Because again, the author didn't need to say it, but he makes it clear. God had made them rejoice. This is honestly even clearer in the original language, in the original Hebrew. See, some translations give this, God made them, or God gave them joy. And it's not bad. I've been talking like this. God can give you joy. But there is a word in Hebrew for give, to give somebody something, and it's not used here. Instead, it's a stronger verb in terms of what God is doing. The verb means to cause somebody to rejoice. Cause somebody to rejoice. And that means that God is causing them to have joy. He's working in them. Their emotions here didn't come from them. That's incredible. And so for us, if you want that joy, that contentment, that purpose, that satisfaction, honestly, God must cause it in you. You can't do it on your own. He's the maker. He's the causer. He's the creator of joy. See, many of us know, right, that we're commanded in the Bible to rejoice. Philippians 4, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Absolutely. Many of us also know that our joy is ultimately supposed to be found in God. Pastor Chris opened with that. Psalm 43, then I will go to God, my exceeding joy. What we don't emphasize, or maybe we've never thought about, is that God is the means that joy. He's how we rejoice in the Lord always. He's how we go to God our exceeding joy. And you see this elsewhere. Just so you think this is a one-time thing. There's other verses, but one I want to point out is one from the New Testament, which here at this church in our commissioning, commissioning prayer we use a lot. It's from Romans 15, and it says this, may the God of hope Fill you with all joy and peace in believing. May the God of hope fill you with joy. If you want to be filled with joy, God has to do it. 
So God is the causer of joy. God causes us to rejoice. That's the first thing. Second thing we see from this text is this. God is in the business of causing great joy. Because you see that emphasized here as well. He could have just said, for God had made them rejoice. That's pretty strong already. But he decides to say they rejoice, for God had made them rejoice with great joy. And this shows us that God is not in the business of just giving people these gleeful moments, but creating something grand and pervasive in our hearts. Something that causes us to not give in to those sins. A superior satisfaction so that we choose God from the heart over money, sex, success, and fame. This is the Christian life. I say that because it was Jesus who gave this little parable. That's a couple sentences that explains this perfectly. You've probably heard it before. He said this in Matthew 13. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and he covered it up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all he has and buys that field. You see Jesus' point. To find the kingdom of heaven is to find something superior to anything else you have. Something so much greater, a superior satisfaction, a surpassingly better joy. So God is in the business of creating great, exceeding, surpassing joy. And once again, he can do that for you. So God creates joy, creates great joy. He's the means to the joy. Let's be honest, this makes God really big, doesn't it? Really big. He doesn't just forgive us, though he does. He doesn't just hear our prayers, but he's involved in us. He can cause you to have that joy. And notice here in verse 43, he encouragingly includes the family. The woman and the children also rejoice. And for those of you here who have families, as we all do, whether it's extended or immediate, God can do that not only for you, but for your family. He can do this for anybody. And so this section teaches us a lot about worship. But I think that clause and that emphasis there from the author and from God teaches us that, brothers and sisters, we must pray, depend upon God. We must cry out for joy. And so when you're feeling tempted to sin, practically, the best answer is not just to say, stop, 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 stop. But in that moment, plead that God gives you a superior satisfaction. Something greater in Christ than that sin. Because when you're tempted to be prideful and full of yourself or lie or get angry, because it feels good to do those things, right? It feels good to get angry sometimes. Or lust. Cry out for joy. How often do you and I honestly pray to God for joy? Pray to God for happiness. He's the causer of joy. And he loves to give it. So rely on him. Depend on him. Pray to him for joy. So we've seen the, the leading up to the worship of all the people. We saw the joyful worship itself. And now what we're going to see is the results of the worship. The results of this worship. The first result you might have already noticed is at the end of verse 43. If you want to look down, it's the last sentence there. So they rejoiced. And then it says this. And the joy of Jerusalem was heard far away. And so the first result is that this joy created a witness. It was noticeable. People heard it. And that makes sense. And as I was thinking about how to apply this, I was honestly especially struck by what we're doing with our building project. See, as with Nehemiah and the walls, 
and all the details and planning that went into that. So with our building project, there's a lot of details that need to fall into place. There's a lot of fundraising that needs to be done. There's a lot of prayer that needs to happen. But the question you might be asking is, well, why? This. Verse 43. This is why. So that we, God's people, may joyfully worship God. And that our joy may be heard far away. It's about joyful, God-centered, God-created worship being heard in Coltsneck, in the surrounding towns, and as far as God decides to give us influence. That's what the building project's all about. And so the first result, their joy was heard far away. But we see another result in the final paragraph. So we'll finish out chapter 12 together. We'll start in verse 44 and read to the end of the chapter. On that day... Men were appointed over the storerooms, the contributions, the first fruits, and the tithes to gather into them the portions required by the law for the priests and for the Levites according to the fields of the towns. For Judah rejoiced over the priests and the Levites who ministered. And they performed the service of their God and the service of purification, as did the singers and the gatekeepers, according to the command of David and his son Solomon. For long ago, in the days of David and Asaph, there were directors of the singers, and there were songs of praise and thanksgiving to God. And all Israel in the days of Zerubbabel and the days of Nehemiah gave the daily portions for the singers and the gatekeepers, and they set apart that which was for the Levites, and the Levites set apart that which was for the sons of Aaron. So once again, there's a lot we could learn here, but I think the best way of summing it up is what we see here, the result, is that their worship that they did in verse 43 wasn't just a one-time thing. It created in them more consistent worship. More consistent worship was restored. And that meant for them the external things were set in place like they needed to be, the proper forms, proper places, proper people. But more importantly, the internal things were more restored. Their hearts were in it. They had praise. They felt joy. If you want to sum it up, verse 46 is a good way of summing it up. With those two words, they gave praise and thanksgiving to God. They started to thank God. And thanking God is something happens to say, oh, thank you, God, for this. You're giving him the glory for it. But praise honestly takes that to the next step. If God provides for you financially, you say, God, thank you for this money. But praise says, oh, God, how gracious and merciful and providing are you to give me this money. They're praising God. And so when God gives you joy, your joy will become a witness And it will do something inside of you. It will create a heart of thanks and praise to God. And that itself will give you more joy. And then the cycle just keeps going. But there's one more result. I know we're done with chapter 12. But there's one more result or at least thing that happened after their worship. And Pastor Chris will teach on this more next week. Because it's a little counterintuitive. But the last thing that happened after the worship is all of Nehemiah 13. And I say that because what we see there is radical disobedience by the people. And you might ask, well, how can that be? See, I believe, and we have good reason to believe, that they genuinely worshipped in chapter 12. They genuinely worshipped God. But this book of Nehemiah and the whole Old Testament is meant to show us that, yeah, back then something was lacking. They needed Christ. They needed the new covenant. They needed the fullness of the gospel. And that is what you and I get to partake in if you trust him. Something that the whole Old Testament was always pointing to. 
But as we come to a close of Nehemiah 11 and 12, I, I do want to come back to this idea of joy we've been, we've been focusing on. Because you might have been wondering the whole time, and I, I, haven't addressed it on, uh, I haven't addressed it yet on purpose. You might have been wondering, okay, so God can give this joy. He can cause it in me. But, but what is this joy? What does it look like? What's it all about? Those are good questions. Now, as I was really thinking about it, I was struck with just a, a couple words, a half of a verse from the New Testament that really can help us here. Because this verse tells us really what it means to be a Christian in your heart, and it gives us some more words to describe this joy. And you can honestly even memorize it on the spot. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14. And the Apostle Paul writes this. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ compels us. The love of Christ, who he is and how his greatness and his grace and what he did for his people on that cross and how he rose and how he's, he loves me right now and how he's going to come back and make everything so much better. He, that love of Christ compels us. It does something deep inside of our hearts. It makes us want to live for him. It makes us want to not give in to sin. It makes us want to have more of him. It makes us say, you know what? He actually is better than anything the world has to offer. That's this joy. That's the joy that God gives. That's the superior satisfaction. The love of Christ compels us. And I want to end with this because I think it would be a mistake if, if we left here only knowing that God gives joy. And it's true. You need to ask God for joy. We've seen that. Only He can cause it in you. But we also need to see what that joy is. That joy that God gives is the love of Christ compels us. Seeing Christ in his superior love makes me want to love him. Makes me want to be humble. Makes me want to repent when I sin. So the joy God gives is focused on the love of Christ. And so this means to apply this text, yeah, this all of Nehemiah 11 and 12, yeah, you need to cry out for joy. You need to cry out for joy. Only he can give you that joy. But also, you need to look at Christ. You need to look more at Jesus. You have to look at Christ if you want this joy. You have to look at Christ if you want God to give you this superior joy. You won't see Jesus as beautiful unless you look at Jesus. To use an analogy, you can't see the sunset as beautiful unless you go and look at the sunset. And so you won't see Jesus as beautiful. You won't have this joy unless you go look at Christ. And God will still be the one giving it. But that's the joy that he gives. It's focused on the love of Christ. So as we close, look at Christ. Look at Jesus more. Read your Bible. Talk to somebody who really loves Jesus. Go to a Bible study. Get plugged in at the church. Pray to him, whatever it takes. And if you're a non-believer here, I do encourage you to, to look a little inward. Look at your sin. Look at how discontent you might be with this world. But more importantly, take all that and go to Christ. In his love, he's willing to accept any who come to him. And he can give that superior joy that you were made for. And if you're a believer here, pray that God will give you more and more joy. In the midst of, in the midst of temptation, in the midst of trial, just day to day, pray that God will give you more joy, but recognize that I'll only do that as you look more and more at Christ. And so pray, God, give me joy. But as you do so, look more and more and more at your Savior, who saved you and secured for you joy forever, but also compelling joy 
right now. Let's pray together. Oh, gracious Father, we do thank you so much that you are gracious, that you treat us so much better than we could ever deserve, that on our own, God, we would just live for self, we would live for sin. We don't really want much to do with you. But you call us out of darkness into your marvelous light. You fill us with joy. You show us a greater reason to be alive. And you showed us all that at the cross of Christ. So I pray, God, I pray that us here in this room, that we we love you more and more and more, that you fill us with more and more joy. You show us more and more reason to live for you. And Father, I do pray for anybody in this room who doesn't know you, that you may show them that you are better than anything the world has to offer, that you may show them the joy that they were made for, that you may show them how much you care for them. And Jesus, we pray also for those here who do know you, whom you have showered your love upon, who see you as wonderful, that you may allow us to day in and day out look to you, to cherish you, to cling to you, to trust you, and that we may go forth from this place and show the world how much better you are, the joy that we found. We can't do this apart from you, God. We are needy. Oh, how bad we need you. We're thankful that you hear us, that you love to answer our prayer of need. We love you, King Jesus. We praise you. It's in your good and wonderful name. Amen.